Hi there, Rachel here. If you're listening to this episode in May of 2024, I have some big news. After selling out during the holiday season, my Flex of Gold journal is available for pre-order right now and will be shipping to your home by the end of June. To celebrate, we're running an amazing pre-order sale for Mother's Day. Purchase the journal before May 13th and you'll get $10 off every journal. This is our best price of the year, even better than Black Friday, so it's the perfect time to stock up for gifts for family and friends. This three-year journal helps mothers to notice, savor, and write down the fleeting golden moments that they experience with their children each day. So go to 3in30podcast.com slash flexofgold to reserve your copy, and you'll also see our brand new cover colors, as well as our new cover option, which is a wipeable vegan leather. So again, go to 3in30podcast.com slash flexofgold to pre-order your journal, and from now until Mother's Day 2024, they'll be marked down by $10 each. I can't wait for you to experience the magic of this beautiful gratitude journal for mothers. You're listening to 3 and 30 Takeaways for Moms, Episode 73. Three essays I wrote while recovering from an eating disorder. Welcome to 3 and 30, a podcast for moms who want to create more meaning in motherhood. Each 30-minute episode will feature three doable takeaways for you to try at home with your family this week. I'm your host, Rachel Nielsen. Thank you so much for being here. On Monday, I released an episode with one of my best friends, Taryn Palmer, who's a registered dietitian and nutritionist, about intuitive eating. And I knew that that episode was really going to just be an introduction to that really big and important philosophy about thinking about food and your body. And I did want to dig in a little deeper and share more of my story because I wanted it to be obvious just how much this has impacted my life. But I knew I couldn't do it in that episode, so that's why I decided to record this bonus for you. And for my three takeaways for today's episode, they're not really going to be takeaways. It's actually going to be formatted a little bit differently. I'm going to share three essays or pieces of writing, reflections that I did while I was in therapy for an eating disorder. And I think through these three different pieces of writing, you'll really be able to see the progression that my recovery took, how much intuitive eating really helped to free me, and where I'm at today. And I love to write. I love to share my heart. And not just to share it, but also to sort out what I'm thinking and feeling. And I feel like sometimes just reading my writing is the best way that I can capture what I've been through. This first essay I wrote on my personal family blog in April of 2013, so about six years ago, which is kind of crazy, just sharing about my experience going to counseling and how I really felt that it was an answer to prayer. So this is religious in tone, but whether or not you're religious, I hope that you will gain a little bit of insight into how I found my counselor and what my counselors did for me. So this is called A True Story of Answered Prayers. It was about a year ago that my prayers were answered in a most unexpected way. I was out for a run with a new friend, someone I didn't know very well, but whom I hoped to get to know better, when totally out of the blue, she said, did I ever tell you that I went to counseling for an eating disorder a few years ago? No, I said, surprised and concerned. Are you okay now? Oh yes, she said, but that was such a difficult time in my life. When I look back now, it's hard to believe that person was even me. 
As we jogged along on the Highland Canal Trail, she talked for probably 10 minutes about the nightmare of living with binge eating disorder. She talked about waking up in the morning or the middle of the night thinking about food, feeling swallowed up by perfectionism and the fear that she would never be enough, grazing on junk food all day and yet still feeling empty, eating in secret because she was ashamed, knowing she had a problem but not sure how to fix it. I listened to her, but I didn't say much. My friend has since told me that she thought I was so quiet because I was confused by what she was telling me because I just didn't get it. What she didn't know then was that I was quiet because my heart was pounding and a lump had gathered in my throat. There's no way my friend could have known that she was describing me and my life. There's no way she could have known that I had been yearning for several years to be delivered from a struggle with food and body image that felt all-consuming. When she was done talking, she said, I know this sounds crazy. Most people just don't get it. But through counseling and prayer and a lot of hard work, my life is so different now. I don't struggle with food issues at all anymore. I was silent for a moment, and then I took a deep breath and said, it doesn't sound crazy, and I do get it. In fact, everything you just described, it's what I'm living with right now. It was one of the first times I allowed myself to talk aloud about my problem. I talked to Ryan, my sisters, and a few of my closest friends about my struggles, but I felt so ashamed, and I think I tried to tone down just how truly desperate I felt, even when I was talking to them. I should be able to fix this, I always told myself. I should have the willpower. I should have the faith. But no matter how many resolutions I made and how many lofty goals I set, I didn't change. I felt trapped. I felt discouraged. And to be honest, it hurts to even write this, I felt worthless and so, so alone. I finally realized that my own willpower was not going to be enough to deliver me. And that's when I turned to God in earnest. Every moment of every day, I asked him, what should I do, Father? What should I do? These words were sometimes audible, but most often they were deep within my heart. He was always, always listening, but for months he let me grapple with my question and come to a place of total humility and reliance on him. And then he gave me my answer, on a run with a friend whom I barely knew. As we continued jogging along the dirt path, she told me about her experience in counseling. She told me there was hope. She told me about a book that she'd used in her therapy called Intuitive Eating, And by the time I got home from running errands later that day, she had ordered me a copy from Amazon. This was just the beginning of my journey. I read the book and I loved the principles that it taught, but I wasn't quite sure how to implement them. I thought about them on and off for months, sharing insights with Ryan as they came to me, occasionally discussing my progress with that same friend who'd been an answer to my prayers. But the change was slow. A seed had been planted, but I wasn't totally ready to change. And then this past September, with support from my sisters, Ryan and my dad, I started counseling. I googled Intuitive Eating Counselors Denver and found a counseling center that focused on eating disorders. I spoke on the phone with a therapist who'd overcome her own food battles and body image demons several decades before, and I felt good about it, so I moved forward. I did one-on-one counseling with her for six months, first once a week and then twice a month. I also attended a weekly group led by another counselor about dealing with stress in healthy ways. And now I'm doing a four-week narrative therapy group with yet another counselor at the office. She's encouraging me to write my story, and it's been so helpful and eye-opening. I'm amazed by the impact all three of these counselors have had on my life. 
They've each contributed in their own way to my journey and my recovery. I sometimes think about the countless hours that they've sacrificed for their education and the countless hours they spend listening to other people's problems, and I feel so grateful to them. They will never know how they've blessed my life. As for me, I am so much happier than I was a year ago, incomparably happier. I now relate to what my friend said on the running path. Looking back, it's hard to believe that lost, hopeless person was even me. Though I'm not yet totally free of my eating disorder, and yes, I've realized over the course of my therapy that this truly was an eating disorder and not just struggles with food as I used to describe it. I'm well on my way to living a healthy, balanced life. I feel hope and I feel happy and I feel very, very grateful. I've grown so much and learned so much from this struggle. More than anything, I've learned that the wise words of Spencer W. Kemble, one of the leaders of my church, are true. God does nothing by chance, but always by design, as a loving father. God does notice us, and he watches over us, but it is usually through another person that he meets our needs. God worked through my friend when he inspired her to open up to me during our jog just over a year ago. Looking back, I find it remarkable that she randomly shared something so personal with someone whom she didn't know very well. She's since become one of my closest friends, and I've asked her if she had any suspicion of what I was going through when she brought up the conversation. Maybe I'd said something in passing that alerted her to my struggle. But she claims that she had no idea what I was going through when she started talking that day on the running path. I know God prompted her to share, and I know that he knew I needed her friendship in my life. God worked through my family as I slowly opened up to them over the course of several years. He encouraged Ryan, who witnessed more of my eating disorder behaviors than anyone, to just keep loving me, being patient with me, and telling me of my beauty and value. He inspired my sisters to be a listening ear for me whenever I was actually willing to share. And he inspired my dad to talk to me about the option of going to counseling when I did not want to talk to anyone about it and constantly pushed him away. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude for my family, especially because I know that most people in the world do not have so much loving support. I try not to feel guilty about that and instead commit to loving and supporting anyone who may need it throughout my life. I want to bless others as I have been blessed. God worked through my counselors to guide me and give me tools on my journey to recovery. I think sometimes there's a belief amongst religious people that if we just have enough faith, we should be able to power through anything difficult in our lives. If we just read scriptures more and pray more, we shouldn't need the help of the counselors or other professionals. But just as God inspires doctors to help heal our physical bodies, I believe he can inspire counselors to help heal our minds and hearts. I felt him in every step of this journey, both as I've knelt in prayer and as I've sat in a session with my counselor. God's power isn't limited to certain activities or places. I believe he can and does work through every method as he mercifully reaches out to bless his children. And now I hope and pray that God can work through me. He has always loved me, even when I didn't love myself. To him, I am precious. Every one of us is precious. If sharing my story can help anyone else who struggled as I have, I will do it. I want to be a resource to anyone who struggles with any sort of pain in this life. I want everyone to know just how valuable and loved they are. I thank God for hearing my prayers. I thank him for loving me and being mindful of me. And most of all, I thank him for sending his son to redeem me and set me free. 
No amount of willpower, no well-planned goals, even spiritual goals such as scripture study and prayer, will be enough to deliver me from my own humanity. I need him. And miraculously and mercifully, he's always willing to reach out and answer me through various methods and various people, and often in the most unexpected ways. This next essay that I'm going to read to you, I mentioned in that blog post that I just finished reading. I said in there that I was working with a counselor who was doing narrative therapy with me to help me write my story of my eating disorder. This is what I wrote in that narrative therapy. Some of you have already heard excerpts of this if you've listened to episode 12 on my podcast, How to Stop Being Mean to Yourself. So I wasn't going to read this one today. I was going to read something else just because I didn't want it to be repetitive for those who've already heard it. But I just... I just decided that a picture of my full experience in counseling would not be complete without reading this. And so even if you've heard excerpts of it before, I think it could be powerful to hear it again and to think about the negative voices that you have in your head and how you're going to change those. So in this narrative therapy, my counselor asked me to embody my eating disorder as a character outside of myself and to explain how I met her what my life was like when she was in it, as well as what my future would look like without her in it. And that might be one of the most powerful parts of this piece is where I envision my future. And that was, you know, I wrote this in 2012. So I was envisioning what's it going to be like in 10, 15 years. So you'll notice when I read that part that the life that I envisioned is not exactly the life I ended up with as far as number of children and different things like that. But I do think that the hope that I had for my future and who I hoped I would become has in many ways come true. And that is so rewarding to realize that. I really think that anybody could do this. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, you could write a story where you confront that problem and acknowledge the ways that it's making your life difficult. And then you can envision what your life will be like in the future once you've overcome that problem. Writing it out and visualizing it is incredibly powerful, and I encourage all of you to do that. So this is the story of how I met my eating disorder and how I was hoping and praying that I would overcome. She came to me one night when I was out for a chilly run under the stars and street lamps of my college town. She pulled up beside me in running shorts, falling right into stride with me, as if she knew me, as if she'd been waiting for me. You could run faster than this, you know, she said matter-of-factly. Huh? I asked, vaguely confused about who she was, but so taken by her nonchalance that I almost felt like we'd planned the meeting. She repeated herself. You could run faster than this. I didn't respond, but I didn't have to. She hadn't meant it as a question. And I hear your mother is dying, she continued. Again, it was a statement of fact. And as we plodded along in side-by-side silence, breathing heavily, taking in the night air... I didn't say anything more. It's okay. I'll be here for you, she said simply. I can make it better. These runs, which had started just a few months earlier when I'd left home for my freshman year of college, had never been about running fast or burning calories or counting mileage. They'd been a time of solitude and peace, a time to think and to try to make sense of my vastly changing life. I wasn't sure I wanted company. But I didn't tell her to leave, and as we reached my dorm hall and I watched her jogging off into the night, her long blonde hair swinging with her steady stride, I knew that I would be seeing her again. 
Over the 10 years that I allowed this friendship to be part of my life, she manipulated me and told me all sorts of lies. She told me that I had to run every single day or else I was a failure. When I had mono and was emotionally exhausted from news of my mom's terminal cancer diagnosis, she told me I had to go running with her at 11.30 p.m. when I got home from studying at the library. If I ever got more than four or five hours of sleep at night, she told me I was worthless and unproductive. A true friend would have told me to climb into bed and be gentle with myself during such a difficult time. She told me that if I ate more than half a salad wrap at any one time, I was going to get enormously fat. She told me to stop eating sweets altogether except for once a week. Once a week was all I could risk if I didn't want to be obese. She made me hyper aware of what I ate because she was constantly making comments about it. You're going to eat a second cookie? Looks like you won't be able to wear those jeans that you just bought for very long. Are you really going to order fettuccine Alfredo? I could always hear her critical commentary running through my head. The summer that my mom was so sick and I was her caregiver while my dad was at work, she met me every morning on the running path. In and of itself, a daily jog was not an unhealthy way to cope, but she pushed me to run farther and farther each day, telling me that my run was a waste of time if it wasn't at least five miles. She would tell me I was pathetic if I missed a day or didn't feel up to running as far as I had the day before. Five miles, six miles, seven miles a day, it wasn't enough. I often ran eight miles or more in the early hours of the morning and then went home and took care of my dying mother for the rest of the day. She told me that she would help me fix the negative emotions that I felt about my mom's impending death. She reminded me to stand on the scale every morning to make sure that something in my life was still in control. The decreasing number on the scale seemed like the only thing that was measurable in the midst of all of the pain. During those months, I did feel comforted by my faith and my family, but I couldn't bear to just sit with the agonizing grief that I was feeling, so I tried to run and starve it away. A few years later, when I started my career as a high school English teacher and got too busy to jog every day, she told me it wasn't worth running at all. What's the point, she would say. At this rate, you're going to get fat anyway, so why even try? When she said this, I felt utter panic, and she seemed to love getting that reaction out of me. She always told me it was all or nothing, and I believed her. She told me not to go to parties and social gatherings because I wouldn't be able to resist the food there. I usually ignored her and went anyway, but I spent the entire time telling myself that I couldn't eat any of the refreshments. I often ended up eating them anyway, which made me feel guilty and weak, so I ate more than I even wanted to because tomorrow I will start my diet. Tomorrow I will start being good. I left those parties feeling sick to my stomach and awful about myself. I told you so, she would say with a smirk. She told me I never deserved to have time to myself. You are so selfish, she would say, when I was too tired to participate in a service opportunity organized by my church. When a student seemed to need extra help on something, whether or not he or she had even asked for the help, she would tell me, if you want to be a good teacher, you need to give up your lunch break to help that student. I would often go an entire day without eating anything, only to realize at 3.15 when the students left my room that I was ravenous and utterly drained. Despite my fatigue, I stayed at the school until 6 or 7 p.m. every night, grading papers and planning lessons, working, always working. During those long afternoons and evenings at the school, she brought me candy bars from the vending machine. You're tired. You've been working hard, she would say to me. This candy will make you feel better. In those moments, she seemed sweet and supportive, but it was always her underhanded attempt to make me feel reliant on her and bad about myself. 
I sometimes ate two or three candy bars to make it through those exhausting work sessions. Slowly, just as she knew it would, the weight crept on. She told me I must be disgusting to my husband with the weight I'd gained. I bet he doesn't even find you attractive at all anymore, she would say. This sometimes made me cry when Ryan and I were together, because I was sure that she was right. When I was struggling to get pregnant and going through infertility treatments, she started hanging around even more. She would wait in the car after my appointments, and as I drove away from the clinic, my heart breaking and numb, she would say to me, Well, if you can't have a baby, at least you deserve to have dessert. Dessert will make this feel better. She encouraged me to stop at the grocery store and buy myself a mini pie or go home and scour the refrigerator for something to temporarily numb the pain. Chocolate frosting with graham crackers, ice cream, foods I didn't even really like or want, but that she assured me would make things feel better. In the midst of my fertility treatments, I was also going through the adoption process, and when I was corresponding with expectant mothers who were considering adoption, she was always the first to remind me that things were uncertain. Don't get your hopes up, Rachel, she would say. Remember the last three birth moms you communicated with? They all changed their minds, and I'm sure this one will too. Her words filled me with anxiety that never really went away, no matter what I was doing. I tried praying and reading scriptures. I tried going out with friends. All of those things helped, but the stress and pain still gnawed at me from the inside. Always, always there. Months later, when my miracle son finally arrived to us through adoption, things didn't go as smoothly as I'd imagined they would. My son had colic and cried most of the day, and I was filled with inadequacy, loneliness, and desperation. Instead of encouraging me that things would get better, she told me I was a terrible mother. She told me I hated being a mother. She told me the rest of my life was going to be miserable. Then she'd say the inevitable, here, eat these brownies. After all, it's the only thing you have to look forward to, and you're never going to be skinny again anyway, so you might as well. She told me to lie to my husband, something that I never thought I would do until she infiltrated my life. She didn't want me to be close to him. She wanted to be my only friend and confidant. He will think you're a failure if he knows how much you eat, she would say. He will realize that you can't follow through on your goals and you are weak and unworthy of his love. You should only make cookies when he isn't home and then throw away the evidence. And you better make up a reason to leave the house instead of telling him that you want to go and get a treat. After a long day stuck at home with a crying baby, I would tell Ryan that I was running an errand, but instead meet up with her to indulge in a dessert that she assured me would help me feel better about my life. But even as I was eating it, I knew she was lying. I would silently resolve to be rid of her, starting the next day. This is the last time I will ever hang out with her, I would tell myself, so I better live it up now. Sometimes we'd stop at multiple drive throughs to get various treats in one evening because nothing was making me feel better, so I had to keep trying different options. A few times I felt so physically sick and so full of self-loathing when I got home that I made myself throw up before I went into the house. It was in the midst of that final nightmare that I decided that I had to break off my friendship with her. I wasn't sure how to do it, so I recruited help. I prayed and pled for strength. I sought help from a professional counselor. My husband, my family, and a few trusted friends were by my side when I told her to get away from me. Get out of my life, I told her. I never want to speak to you or see you again. She didn't take the news well, and she was slow in leaving. There were times when she knocked on my door, and in a low moment, I let her in. We'd sit on the couch and talk, and she would start feeding me lies again, and sometimes I would listen, but it wasn't like before. I never really let her back into my heart. 
Now her visits are few and far between. Sometimes she still knocks. I look through the peephole and see her standing there. Sometimes she even tries to talk to me through the door, but I generally don't respond. I may hear her words and wonder if they're true, but I don't respond to her and I don't let her in. And I think she's starting to get the hint. She comes around less and less often these days. Looking back, it's hard to believe that I allowed myself to be abused and manipulated for so long. It makes me feel sick and a little embarrassed to think about the years that I wasted on her. But it also makes me proud to realize that I have almost broken free, and it makes me feel hopeful to realize that she has left a big space in my life that I can fill with relationships that actually nourish me, instead of leaving me empty, alone, and in pain. I am the mother of four beautiful children. It is a busy, chaotic life, but for the most part, I'm able to keep my cool and mother with love because I love myself. I'm close to my father in heaven. I feel his love for me, and I know my worth. I'm able to take the stresses of life in stride instead of eating my way through them. When I do revert to emotional eating, which happens on occasion, I forgive myself and move forward. My eating disorder rarely comes knocking anymore. She knows there is no point. I teach my children to take care of their bodies, minds, and souls. We eat lots of delicious fruits and vegetables, and of course, some awesome treats too. Food isn't the center of our family and universe, but we aren't afraid of it. We get outside and exercise together a lot as a family. We go for hikes and bike rides. We go for after-dinner walks around the neighborhood. A few nights a week, my husband and I put the kids to bed and have a teenage neighbor come over and sit with them so we can go walking or jogging under the stars together, just like we did when we were dating. We are active and strong. I take the breaks that I need from mothering my big family, and I don't feel guilty about it. I have a babysitter twice a week for a few hours so I can go to a local coffee shop and write. I also take an evening every week to myself, meeting up with a friend for dessert, going to a bookstore to read, or just taking a walk by myself at sunset to think and to pray. Because I want to be present and relaxed for my family and friends, I say no to extracurricular activities and responsibilities that will leave me feeling overwhelmed and drained. I'm someone whom people can call on a whim. I'm available to talk and to help. I am not stressed and overly busy all the time. I am happy. I am fulfilled. I'm able to see the value and meaning in my life. I no longer feel stressed or self-loathing on a daily basis. I get enough sleep. I take care of myself. I feel my emotions instead of fleeing from them through starvation, exercise, or excess. I love and savor life with all of its ups and downs. I love and nourish myself with all of my weaknesses and imperfections. I am grateful. I am at peace. I am free. Holy cow, you guys. I did not remember how heavy that essay was <laughs> when I was reading that middle portion, especially with all of those specific details about the way that my eating disorder impacted my life and the horrible things I thought about myself. I was reminded all over again how incredibly grateful I am for the counseling that I did and for intuitive eating, which is the method of listening to my body and releasing myself from this obsession with food that it, it truly, it changed who I am. And I think you can have a sense of that from listening to that essay. I'm going to end with one final piece that I did in counseling. This was actually several years later. Um, I'm a really firm believer that we're rarely like one and done with our mental recovery. And so 
I have seen three different counselors over the course of my life. I did that first session that was about nine months long in Denver at that um, office that specialized in intuitive eating and eating disorders. And then I was really good for a few years. And then when I got pregnant with Sally, I started noticing a lot of anxiety and different worries. And so I started seeing another counselor in Twin Falls who was hugely impactful in my life. And then after Sally was born and things, you know, kind of settled, I was good again. And then a few years later, I got a health diagnosis that really, really impacted me. And so I started seeing a different counselor who came recommended for that. And each one of these counselors that I've seen has brought so much to my life. So I would encourage you to try different people at different times. This last piece that I'm going to read to you is my most recent counselor invited me to write a letter to my body after I got my health diagnosis. And I thought for sure that my letter to my body would be angry. I thought that a lot of hateful things might come out and how could you have done this to me? And I was shocked by the tenderness that came out when I wrote a letter to my body. And I'm going to read it to you now. I would strongly encourage you, if you've been on a journey with your body, with body image, to try this exercise. Sit down and write a letter to your body, and it doesn't matter what comes out. It can be angry. Maybe that's what you need in order to work through what you're going through now. And then in a few months, write another one. In a few years, write another one and see how far you've come. I want to end with this letter to my body and with the message of hope and love and healing for all of you who are listening. Thank you for listening today. I know this has been a little heavy and a little less tangible than what I typically give you in my episodes. I just wanted you to see this journey that I've been on and hopefully get some ideas and tools for ways you might seek additional mental support and health, mental support and help, um, regardless of what you are going through in your own life. So here is my letter to my body written a year and a half ago. To my precious body, oh my dear one, we have been on a journey together, haven't we? Together every day, every step of the way, truly of everyone in this world, of all of my kindreds, my friends and family whom I've tried to describe my struggles and my battles to, no one really understands. No one has felt it all and experienced it all with me. No one but you. You have suffered with me, borne my griefs for me willingly when I couldn't. When my heart was breaking as I watched my mother disappear, you let me try to disappear too. And you let me pound you into the gravel of the running path each morning, and you let me try to starve the ache away. Even when I wasn't caring for you, you were caring for me, sustaining me, keeping me on my feet, keeping my heart beating. I wish that I had cared for you too. But the pain was so deep, so biting, that I didn't even know I was carrying it. After years of loss and grief from the time I was a little girl watching my mother suffer from breast cancer, it's like I didn't know how to care for you, and I didn't even notice that you were caring for me. I pressed on in my habits of too much and too little. I stuffed you, I punished you, I even blamed you. It's not my fault, I didn't know how to cope with my grief any differently. But all the while, you were my ever-patient friend, adjusting for the fluctuations, keeping me going, staying with me, doing your best to not run out of energy, believing in me, and that I would eventually come to a place where I was ready to listen, knowing that day would come. My dear body, you've been so faithful, and I know you're tired. 
It's becoming evident from the ways you're acting lately. But I'm not angry. You've done such a good job of taking care of me these past 15 years. You've been there for me through some of the hardest times of my life, and I am so grateful. Thank you. Thank you for being the other half of my soul. Now it's my turn to take care of you. I think I'm finally ready. I love you, and I want to do so much better at listening. It's going to take time for me to learn how to get to know you again, but it's what I want. It's what I promise. You can trust me now. I'm here. I'm listening. Let's take care of each other. Love, Rachel. If you hear yourself in any of these essays, I want to encourage you, there is hope. I also wanted to point you to the show notes to this episode, which is going to have a list of a lot more resources that you can dive into to dig into intuitive eating and other methods of healing your relationship with your body, with yourself, and with food. And as you know, I am a huge proponent of counseling. So if you need somebody to cheer you on, if you make that decision, send me an email or a message on Instagram, and I will tell you how brave you are, and I will support you in any way that I can. The more that I share my heart on this podcast with you, and the more that you share your hearts in return, and the comments and the messages and the emails that you send me, I am not being cliche when I say that I do feel like this community is part of my big extended family. And I would love to meet you. I'm only going to teach a couple more of my Declutter Your Motherhood workshops this year, and I'm going to be teaching them in different locations, which I will announce in the next few weeks. But I did want to tell you that I added about five more tickets to my workshop in Utah. That sold out in five days, and I expect that these five tickets will go really quickly. So if you want one, go and grab one today from 3in30podcast.com forward slash workshops. And to all of you listening... Be kind and gentle with your body and with yourself this week and know that I am rooting for you.